This program is made possible by members and donors to the show. To support the work we do, two bucks a month gets you an ad-free version of the show, plus the opportunity to vote each week on what upcoming topics we'll cover, while full members get all that, plus members-only bonus episodes with extra clips and commentary. Sign up at patreon.com slash bestofleft, or visit the Contribute tab at bestofleft.com. Now, welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of Left podcast, in which we shall learn about the history and present of anti-Semitism in America. Clips today come from Backstory, Past Present, The Brian Lehrer Show, Full Frontal with Samantha B, and a TED Talk from Deborah Lipstadt. Anti-Semitism is on the rise in America. 2017 saw the largest increase in anti-Semitic incidents on record. More and more fascists and neo-Nazis parade their violent ideology, as we saw last summer here in Charlottesville. In Europe, many sites of the Holocaust have been turned into museums, and we often hear the phrase, never again, associated with remembering the genocide. But in the United States, the history is starting to get a bit hazy. Americans in recent years have taken to reopening old debates about how many Jews were killed in Nazi concentration camps, and many have forgotten the name Auschwitz altogether. But there is some good news. While basic details are receding from memory, 96% of Americans believe that the Holocaust occurred, and 93% believe that all students should learn it in school. Educating the public about the genocide and its relevance to today is the mission of the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum in Washington, D.C. The museum has a new exhibition, Americans and the Holocaust, which explores the reaction of the U.S. public to the persecution and murder of Jews in Europe in the 1930s and 40s. I recently took a trip to D.C. with one of our producers to check it out. We arrived on a Friday morning, and I was pleased to see just how many people were there. Thank you. Thank you. Hi, Hi, I'm Brian Bell. Hi, Danny Green. Great to meet you. Hi, Hi. Martinez. Nice Hi. to meet you. Nice Thank to you meet so you, too. Much. Thanks for coming. Our guide for the day was curator Daniel Green. Uh, come on in this way, because um, it'll give you a sense of where we want people to be at the beginning of the exhibition. And we can, you, can, you'll, you hear it a lot louder in the gallery, but we're trying to attract people down the hall. We walked up to a video screen showing a series of photographs and newsreels from the 1930s. People standing in bread lines, a lynching. Green says that these images put America in its historical context. We see xenophobia, racism, violence, anti-Semitism in the United States, and we see the economy fall apart and Americans hungry and, and looking for jobs. Those insecurities and those fears are going to shape our response to Nazism almost all the way along. What do you expect people will be most surprised to learn from this exhibit? I think they'll be surprised to learn how much detailed information Americans had about the persecution and murder of Jews in Europe in real time. The first part of the exhibit focuses on how the American media covered Nazi Germany in small towns and large cities across the United States. Here, what you're seeing on these magazines are coverage of Nazism in Time magazine, Vanity Fair. Americans are very interested in Hitler as a new world leader. And anti-Semitism is not hidden. Joseph Goebbels on the cover of Time magazine, July 10th, 1933, the tagline is, Say it in your dreams, the Jews are to blame. As pitilessly, as brutally as it did five years ago, 
is Goebbels' persecution of the Jews. Signposts at city limits bear the legend, Jews not wanted, Jews keep out. You see anti-Semitism in Germany. Americans going to the theaters could have seen this. In this theater, you'll see Father Coughlin ranting against what he called, you know, Jewish communism and says, pledge with me to restore America to the Americans. Um, elected representatives blaming America's unemployment problem on immigration. And if only we shut down immigration, we wouldn't have an employment problem. So the, the themes are resonant today. In November of 1938, Americans were immersed in coverage of Kristallnacht. Jewish-owned homes, businesses, and synagogues were vandalized en masse in territories controlled by Germany. President Roosevelt, in a statement without precedent, speaks out against the persecution of minorities in Germany. He says he could scarcely believe such things could occur. Acting on presidential instruction, Secretary of State... The American press reports Kristallnacht as a nationwide terror attack by a government against its own citizens. And you see banner headlines. We show how the president, Roosevelt, responds to Kristallnacht. We show how Congress responds to Kristallnacht with the idea of a child refugee bill that can't make its way out of committee onto, onto the floor for a vote. And we focus on these two polls in two weeks after Kristallnacht, one which shows that 94 percent of Americans disapprove of the treatment of Jews by the Nazis. And then they're asked whether we should let in more Jewish exiles in that same week at the end of November. And more than seven out of 10 say no. This rise of intolerance in Germany today, the suffering being inflicted on an innocent and helpless people, We want visitors to ask hard questions as they come through this exhibition. A hard question is, why is there a gap between disapproval of atrocities abroad and a will to action on behalf of the victims? I can see from where we're standing a series of public opinion poll questions. I hope the answers are on the back. They are. And it looks like they're intended to guide us through this exhibit. Right. And we we decided early on that we wanted this to be Americans and the Holocaust, not the U.S. government and the Holocaust. And so we thought, how do we get to what all Americans were thinking about? And the science of polling is imperfect, and and it's even less perfect in the 30s and 40s than it is now. But you see these major trends of isolationism, of fear of another depression, of reluctance to let in exiles, desire not to go to war consistently in all of these polls. And we hope that visitors who come through will say, oh, this is what was on Americans' minds. The danger of the Roosevelt administration lies in its subterfuge. While its members have promised us peace, they have led us to war heedless of the platform upon which they were elected. And here we show the America First Committee, um, the anti-war movement founded in 1940, Charles Lindbergh becomes the most popular spokesman of this. When he goes to Nazi Germany in uh, October 1938, he's awarded the service cross of the German eagle. This is the service cross that he was awarded, that, that Hermann Goering handed to him. If any of these groups, the British, the Jewish, or the administration, stops agitating for war, I believe there will be little danger of our involvement. We focus on this infamous speech he gives in Des Moines on September 11th, 1941, where he calls the Jews war agitators and he threatens them. Um, He says their status in America will not be as secure if we go to war to fight Nazism. 
December 7, 1941, a date which will live in infamy. The United States does enter the war after the bombing of Pearl Harbor by Japan. And although many Americans were horrified by the treatment of Jews in Germany, America's response to Pearl Harbor was to round up our own citizens with Japanese ancestry. Into what are called at the time concentration camps. This is this this um, magazine really, um, the contrast of these two magazines was really interesting to me. This is The Crisis. This is the NAACP's magazine. Um, the article is Americans in Concentration Camps, September 1942. And they say color seems to be the only reason why thousands of American citizens of Japanese ancestry are in concentration camps. In contrast, Life magazine is writing about Manzanar, which they call a scenic spot of lonely loveliness, um, where Japs are settled comfortably. The headline says Mountain Camp. Right, right. And Americans are for, and this poll is asking whether we're doing the right thing rounding up Japanese aliens and removing them from the Pacific coast. Um, And 93% of Americans say yes. The question is asked about aliens, not about citizens, even though two-thirds of of the Japanese Americans who are rounded up are citizens. Also in America in 1942, Americans learned about what the Nazis call the final solution, the plan to murder all the Jews of Europe. And we ask in this last section of the exhibition, within the context of war, which is the story, what do we do? about the fact that we know this. There are no American reporters on the ground. So very often the tone of those articles is, we've been told that. It's been said that two million Jews have been murdered. But we don't see, for the most part, there are a few Soviet photos that leak out evidence of the atrocities that we think about today when we think about the Holocaust until after mass murder is over. It's April and May of 45, one of the things that I think about is as Americans are going to the newsreels in April of 45 to watch this newsreel Nazi murder mills, it's also the moment that the president has died. President for 12 years. So there are all, when we, when, as this information is leaking out, we're celebrating the defeat of Nazism. It's a lot going on. There's a lot going on. Uh, What would you like people to take away from this exhibit? We want people to think about their roles and responsibilities as citizens in a democracy. One way to look at this exhibition is, what do we do when a democracy falls apart? What's our responsibility to refugees? When should we enter a war that a lot of Americans consider a foreign war? When we learn that a population abroad is targeted for murder, what should we do about it? I think you often see Americans blamed for not knowing history, (laughs) Um, sometimes made fun of on late night programs, right, for not knowing history. But it's our job to teach them this history. You know, the challenge of putting together an exhibition and the challenge of public history is it's the same content, but it's got to mean something to an eighth grader and an 80 year old who lived through it. Um, And if people, if visitors, especially high school and college students can understand that these questions also have a history in America, For us, that would be a great outcome. I was 
kind of surprised to learn that it was the deadliest attack against Jews in U.S. history, given that 11 people were killed. And I realize that's an enormous number of people. And yet, given the kind of mass violence we see in the United States on a regular basis, and given the history of pogroms against Jewish people, I mean, I I knew that we didn't really have pogroms in the United States in the way they did in Russia and Poland and other places in Eastern Germany and Western Germany. Um, But I was actually surprised by how little documented anti-Semitic violence and murder there has been in the U.S. And I do think that that speaks to what many people see as a kind of American exceptionalism when it comes to Jewish people in American life. That was my reaction to Nikki um, was surprised that, you know, a, a shooting of 11 people was the deadliest attack on American Jews. And I think that's both a statement about American Jewish history, but also a statement, obviously, about the history of violence in America and, and, and so many of these mass attacks that we've talked about um, recently. But I do think there's also something here about the way in which in the 20th century and maybe even in the 19th century too, the fact that the U.S. became a safe haven for Jews has become maybe not a core part of American national identity, but certainly a significant component of it, which is part of what makes an attack like this, I think, also so surprising. Right. I mean, the U.S. has certainly proven itself capable of mass murder driven by white nationalism, the slaughter of Native Americans, of African Americans. Like, this is not something unknown in the American experience, but for Jewish immigrants and Jewish Americans, though it has by no means been um, simply a, an embrace and a um, a safe haven, it has been more of that than it has been in other places. And I think that's what makes it difficult for a lot of people to understand this recent surge in hate crimes against Jewish Americans and actual death and violence. And I think that part of what this conversation has to be about is not just anti-Semitic violence, but the way that anti-Semitism and violence are a core part of white supremacy in a way that, to a certain extent, has been true in the United States in the past. But as this kind of violent white supremacy reemerges and becomes more central to American mainstream politics in the current era, that we have to understand that the white supremacy of today, as um, embodied by the alt-right and other groups, is deeply and violently anti-Semitic. Yes, I think that that's right. And I think that um, one of the reasons that that's hard to grapple with is because, you know, for all of the great sociology and history that's been written about deconstructing the notion of American race relations is purely existing in a black white dyad, right? That it's not just about black people and then a monolithic white people. A lot of people, I think, have a hard time, especially in the late 20th century, wrapping their head around the ideas that there can be racist violence against Jews who have since the end of World War II or so been in many ways enfolded into the white mainstream, or at least the white ethnic mainstream. There was um, a thread on Twitter in the wake of Pittsburgh by um, Yasha Mounk, who teaches at Harvard and writes for The Atlantic. And um, I don't know which outlet he was talking about, because he didn't name it, at least when I saw this, but he was saying that he had written a piece about this, and that his editor had said, you can't call anti-Semitic violence racist. And he was like, how much more does it take? I, and I think that that's, that's 
one of the reasons why there was such shock at this and why there's still, I think, a resistance to see this as part of a white nationalist project, which it absolutely is. So this is something that I've explored a lot in the aftermath of the violence in Charlottesville, because if you look at the slogans, at the signs of the white nationalist and white supremacist violence in Charlottesville, not just on August 11th and 12th, but when the Klan came to town on July 8th, 2017, they come to town and the Klan is bearing signs that almost to a person are Mm anti-Semitic. And for a lot of the Jewish people who were there, including Dahlia Lithwick, who I interviewed, they were like, wait, what? Why is the Klan carrying anti-Semitic signs? What's going on here? And the language on August 11th and 12th and the symbology and all of that was deeply anti-Semitic. And yet, the anti-Semitism largely disappeared from our conversation about August 11th and 12th. And I talked with some of the Jewish leaders here in town and some members of the synagogue here in town, and they talked about exactly what you're saying, Natalia, which is that It's complicated for Jewish Americans, especially Jewish Americans who have white privilege, Mm -hmm. that we have to have a nuanced understanding of racism and white supremacy in order to understand how people who have white privilege can also be victims of white supremacy. And that's largely down to the fact that the alt-right and these other groups are calling back to the principles of Arianism. And according to the principles of Arianism, Jewish people can't be white, no matter how many people might think that they are. But I do think following this massacre in Pittsburgh, it does seem like the conversation is about anti-Semitism. And first of all, I just want to pause on like the fact that you are talking about the entrance of the KKK into Charlottesville and that we're acting like this is just kind of such plain news. I mean, I feel like it's just this is where we are in 2018. But mm-hmm. but back to Pittsburgh, one of the things that's really struck me about the political commentary is that it seems like for the left, this has been mostly a conversation about anti-Semitism and not about gun violence, mm-hmm. um, which is quite different from other attacks. I mean, even think about like the, the attack in, in Orlando and the Pulse nightclub attack. I mean, yes, there was a conversation very much there about violence toward the LGBT community, but I think that most of that conversation stayed focused on gun violence. And that's what kind of plays out in one attack after another in the U.S. And yet, I didn't really hear the left talking about gun violence as much in this circumstance as, as they were about the ugly reemergence of anti-Semitism. And it was Trump who actually brought gun violence into the conversation, of course, framing it in a much different way than the left would, but arguing that had there been, you know, secured armed security on the premises, then this could have been handled differently. And I that just really struck me that he was the one bringing um, the topic of guns and gun violence violence into this conversation. Not surprisingly that he doesn't want to talk about the anti-Semitism angle of it. To go back to something that we were talking about earlier in the conversation about the uniqueness and the magnitude of this event, I wonder how many attacks are thwarted or don't happen because so many Jewish places of worship are really heavily guarded. I mean, you walk around New York City for sure, and of course it's a large city, and the Jewish Community Center essentially has like these cement barricades outside. It's Mm -hmm. routine um, when you go 
go to a Jewish day school or synagogue for there to be armed guards outside. And, you know, that happens in a lot of places. And if you remember one of the early reports out of Squirrel Hill, Pittsburgh said something like gunmen took advantage of unlocked doors to enter the premises, which I thought was such a weird, um, blame the victimy kind of uh, headline about this, but also did highlight the fact that unlocked doors are a rarity in Jewish places of worship, precisely because many Jews never feel quite safe, you know, and for good reason as to as uh, the events of last weekend show. So in Charlottesville, for the first time last summer, they hired a security guard. And now anytime you pass the synagogue, first of all, it's locked down. But there is always a security guard on the premise anytime there is a human being inside the synagogue. And that's something new. And I think something that um, we'll see more of in even smaller synagogues outside of places like New York. Today's episode is sponsored by, and what an appropriate sponsor for today's topic, Human Rights Watch. 2018 has been a difficult year for human rights, but have you ever wondered how rights abuses are documented around the world? With the sheer volume of global crises we're seeing, from civilian casualties in Syria, to ethnic cleansing in Myanmar, to the caging of children on the U.S. borders, it's critical that we expose the truth in order to defend the rights of all and bring those responsible to justice. Human Rights Watch does just that. They're an independent, non-profit organization known for their accurate, fact-finding, impartial reporting, and targeted advocacy, often in partnership with local activists and human rights groups. They accept no money from any government, but rely on the support of informed, dedicated people just like you. So if human rights are important to you, and I know they are, visit hrw.org best to make a donation and support its vital work around the world. When you do, not only is your gift tax deductible, it will be matched dollar for dollar until 2019. That means your donation will go twice as far to advance justice and defend the basic dignity of the people who need it most. Again, that's hrw.org org slash best and thanks I'd like to replay that Trump clip from Fox last night and get both your takes on it again this starts with a question from the host Laura Ingram the word nationalism has taken on for the left this connotation of fueling anti-Semitism, hate, even violence. Do you think that is fair? And do you want to no. further clarify what nationalism means no. to you? To me, I don't have to clarify. It means I love the country. It means I'm fighting for the country. I look at two things, globalists and nationalists. I'm somebody that wants to take care of our country because for many, many years, you know this better than anybody, our leaders have been more worried about the world than they have about the United States, and they leave us in a mess. So I'm curious how you each hear the words nationalist and globalist as used by Donald Trump there. Tanya, would you weigh in on that? Well, I'm sorry, but that just sounded like babble to me. I'm, I'm not even sure what he meant. Um, I, I don't know 
if Donald Trump has a coherent political uh, philosophy, he seems to me to be entirely an opportunist and whatever seems best for him at that moment he'll do. Um, but I do know that nationalism is always terrible for all minorities, whether they, uh, they be gay or they be Jewish uh, or they be Muslim. And I think uh, speech like that is, is incredibly dangerous. And I'm not surprised that he then becomes incredibly vague on the subject because I think he doesn't really know what he believes. You say national, nationalism is terrible for all minorities. Where, in your view, is somebody who writes about anti-Semitism, including, as you said earlier, anti-Semitism that uh, spins off from legitimate criticism of Israeli government policy. Zionism is Jewish nationalism, as some define it. Would you, and is that unique and different, in your opinion, than other kinds of nationalism? I think it's very similar to most nationalisms. And as I said, nationalism is terrible for minorities. And certainly Jewish nationalism has not been particularly good for the Palestinian minority live, uh, living out in the Middle East. Um, Heidi, how do, how do you hear the words nationalist and globalist as used by Donald Trump? Well, I mean, I have to agree to some extent. I'm not exactly sure what Donald Trump is talking about. But what I do know this is that the white supremacists that we track, when they hear the words globalism and nationalism, they do have a particular idea in mind. Nationalism is countries for white people that are dangerous for minorities, as, as was just said. And globalism usually refers to Jewish conspiracies. And Donald Trump has already engaged in a ton of hate speech against Muslims, um, against immigrants, you know, calling them rapists and so on the first day as he was running for office. So you can't take his comment about nationalism as just being love of country away from all of that hate rhetoric. He has defined himself as willing to be divisive on issues of race and immigration. His last ad when he was running for office depicted Soros, you know, the um, uh, philanthropic Jewish person who is being attacked lately is behind, as being behind globalism. It depicted Soros as allied with Clinton and another prominent Jewish person from the financial world as running a globalist conspiracy. Hmm. So he is traded in all the ugly tropes. So you can't hear nationalism coming out of his, his mouth and not think about all of this. Trump, is Trump on this weird sort of bubble though, where if he is dog-whistling white nationalism when he says nationalism, sometimes it is meant to include Jews, sometimes it is not, suggesting the question, are Jews white? When Steve Bannon talks about his cultural nationalism, he cites Judeo-Christian values as a unified thing. Trump, of course, is a fervent supporter um, of Benjamin Netanyahu and the Israeli right in general, and his daughter Ivanka, as we know, converted to Judaism to marry Jared Kushner, who is one of Trump's closest people. So how do you see Trump in this respect? But in a larger sense, how much do you see modern white nationalism as sometimes including Jews, sometimes excluding Jews? I'm curious to hear, Heidi, your U.S. take on this, and Tanya, your European one. Heidi, you want to go first? Yeah, there are some segments of the white nationalist movement in the United States that consider Jews to be white. At one point, a debate over this actually broke out in one of the largest white nationalist groups, American Renaissance, here, um, about whether this should be the case. But I would say broadly, the white supremacist movement considers Jews 
to be a sort of a race apart. In other words, anti-Semitism, which is one of the oldest hatreds, runs fast and thick through every part of this movement. And I sort of think of Trump's comments, because you're right, he's a fervent supporter of Israel, his daughter is Jewish, but yet he's willing to trade in these anti-Semitic tropes regardless of that. And all I can think is that he is speaking to these extremist supporters of his with a wink-wink and a nod. Um, But when it comes to other populations, Muslims and immigrants, he's using a bullhorn. He's not dog-whistling. And he's definitely been engaging in in racist, divisive material that he's putting out there to these extremist types who support him. Tanya Gold, same question. Um. Well, I, I have a theory about why some anti-Semites love Israel, and it's it's quite a dark theory, but I'll um, I'll, I'll put it out there anyway. Um, I saw a comment once on social media um, after an incursion into Gaza, an invasion, or whatever, and the comment said, "You're not so special anymore." And I thought that was very, very interesting because the point about Jews in Europe um, is after they were expelled, of course, by the Romans uh, 2,000 years ago, they never had a country of their own. Uh, They were victims of pogroms and and, and murders. They were the eternal victim people. And yet they were attached to God. And I'm sorry to go as far back in history as I am, but, but this is all very, very ancient stuff. Um, and they stayed with this God, even when their lives were threatened. And now in Israel, you see Jews behaving like every other nation state, as I said, not so special anymore. And I'm not suggesting any any of this is conscious. Uh, but if you're someone who doesn't like Jews, the idea of Jews, you don't mind Jews in Israel so much because you can see that that is where we are. And I want to put speech marks around this uh, sinning, where Jews become like every other nation state and not so close to God anymore, not so special anymore. I, I say this is something only an anti-Semite would think. And there's something related to that that was a thought expressed on uh, the New York Times podcast, The Daily, this morning, that the hard right loves Israel because they love ethno-states in general. They want that kind of blood and soil, purism, um, to be the organizing principle of the world. So they want all Jews to go there. Heidi, does that make sense to you? Well, that is certainly an argument that you hear from some committed anti-Semites in the United States like David Duke. They want to make the argument that Jews have an ethno-state, meaning Israel, and why shouldn't white people have that? Uh, you actually hear that a lot. It's, it's part of the anti-Semitic thinking in the United States, like once again the Jews are getting away with something that white people are denied. So that is certainly a topic of discussion, and, and many white nationalist leaders point to Israel and say it's hypocritical. How come the Jews can have their own country, but we white folks can't? I want to play for um, for you, Tanya, um, something about nationalism that your country mate, BBC's the BBC's Caddy K, said about patriotism versus nationalism on MSNBC last week. Listen to these thirty seconds. I think this debate about patriotism versus nationalism is playing out in other countries too, and other countries are watching how it's playing out here. It's clear patriotism, if Donald Trump had chosen to say, I'm a patriot, no one would have been shocked. But it's this idea of nationalism, which in this country has connotations of white nationalism and race, and in Europe has connotations of fascism and a takeover of power, but is always associated with power. And whether you want to grab power from other groups, patriotism is a love of your own country and your own values. Nationalism has to do with taking power from other people. 
response to the anti-Semitic massacre in a Pittsburgh synagogue on Saturday, the White House was quick to denounce the hateful attacks on the true victim, our president. The very first thing that the media did was condemn the president and go after and try to place blame, not just on the president, but everybody that works in this administration. And if anything, I think it is sad uh, and divisive the way that every single thing that comes out of the media, 90% of what comes out of the media's mouth is negative about this president. Despite the fact that the economy is booming, despite the fight, he said he would uh, fix the trade deals. Despect the fight? Oh, my God. Is Sarah Huckabee Sanders in a fable about what happens when you lie too much? (gasps) Careful, little Sarah. If you twist the truth, the devil will twist your tongue. Trump and many other Republicans reacted to the shooting by condemning anti-Semitism. Always nice when we can agree that some hate crimes are bad. But the truth is, the Republican Party tolerates anti-Semitism and benefits from it. Mainstream conservatives would never say anything negative about Jewish people outright, but There are other words they use, like coastal elites, globalists, Hollywood liberals, or John Leibowitz. And currently, the biggest, loudest dog whistle is George Soros. Democrats, George Soros. George Soros. George Soros. George Soros. George Soros. George Soros. 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 George Soros. Genuinely radical billionaire George Soros. George Soros is genuinely radical? That just makes him sound cool as hell. Hang ten, Joso. George Soros is a billionaire investor and Jewish Holocaust survivor who created a charitable family called Open Society. But according to right-wing conspiracy theories, George Soros is a demonic, Nazi, commie supervillain who controls everything from world governments to when people poop. For real, a Campbell's Soup executive actually tweeted Open Society planned the migrant caravan, including where they defecate. Okay, first of all, as the purveyor of chunky sirloin burger soup... You are much more in control of where people defecate. (laughs) Obviously, this guy doesn't control the world government. He can't even control his own under-eye bags. You can sleep a family in those things. (laughs) The idea of Soros as... Puppet Master was introduced into America's bloodstream back in 2010 by a dear, dear friend of the show. If you skip past all of the puppets and the strings, if you stop looking at the puppets themselves... You have to see who's behind the puppets. Who is choosing the puppets and the players? Who's the puppet master? George Soros. Who is behind the puppets? Who is the puppet master? Why do girls seem to lose interest in me once they've seen my massive puppet collection? Sleepy old Zadie is not a puppet master. He may be wealthy and influential, but he does not control the government, the weather, or anyone's poops, aside, I hope, from his own. But the idea of Jews as wealthy, scheming world dominators goes way back, farther than 2010. It's as old as Mike Pence thinks the earth is. For example, everything people say about Soros was said before about Nathan Mayer Rothschild of the long-demonized Rothschild banking family. Nathan was falsely accused of profiteering from Napoleon's bloody defeat at Waterloo, an utterly false smear that stuck to all European Jews for over 200 years. As we all know, the only people to have ever made bazillions off the Battle of Waterloo are ABBA. (laughs) And so it went through the years. The czars of Russia, the Nazis, Richard Nixon, all of them found Soros-like Jewish figures to blame to consolidate their power and justify their behavior. Anti-Semitism isn't unique to the right, but right now it is 
shockingly mainstream in the Republican Party. Major elected officials drop dark Soros references constantly. First off, do you believe George Soros is behind all of this, paying these people to get you and your colleagues in elevators or wherever they can get in your face? I have uh, heard so many uh, people believe that. I tend to believe it. They're called globalists. Uh, they They like the globe. I like the globe, too. I like the globe, too, but we have to take care of our people. We have to. Globalists. (laughs) I can't help but think that the Democrats, uh, perhaps Soros, others may be funding this. And look at the background. George Soros is one of those people that actually helps, you know, back these individuals. Do you think George Soros funded the neo-Nazis who marched in Charlottesville? Wouldn't it be interesting to find out? You know you've got issues when you look at Nazis and go, hmm, seems Jewish. Unless you're thinking, hey, maybe this is the harmless kind of ethnic hatred. Remember, a radicalized Trump supporter sent George Soros a bomb last week. When someone spouts this bullshit, it's not an accident. But it's especially not an accident if, in addition to the dog whistles, you have deep foghorns of hate. During the campaign, Donald Trump posted an anti-Semitic meme of a star of David next to Hillary Clinton. And later, Sean Spicer did whatever this was. Someone as despicable as Hitler, who didn't even sink to the to the to using chemical weapons. Those comments sparking an immediate backlash. Hitler gassed millions of Jews in concentration camps during the Holocaust. That forcing Spicer to clarify before the briefing was over. I think when you come to sarin gas, uh, there was no he was not using the gas on his own people the same way that a shot is doing. There was not. In the in the he brought him into the to um, to the Holocaust Center. I understand that Spicer apparently referring to concentration camps when he used the term Holocaust Center. Oh my God! Can you believe that Sean Spicer is just out in the world right now eating mayonnaise with a spoon? <laughs> By the way, I know Trump has a daughter who's Jewish. I forget her name. She's never really come up on the show. But that doesn't mean he can't be anti-Semitic. His daughter is also a woman, and he sure hates those. Scapegoating Jewish people is an ancient, horrible tradition, and it is happening in our country. Republicans didn't ask their supporters to take an AR-15 and massacre praying Jews, but Republicans were speaking a language that shooter heard loud and clear. He posted conspiracy theories about Soros on social media, just like politicians, soup bosses, and even the president have. Anti-Semitic violence and vandalism have surged since Trump's election, and they are not coming out of nowhere. Trump has whipped up a xenophobic mob, and xenophobic mobs don't traditionally make exceptions for Jewish people. Despite the fight that it hurts Republicans' feelings to hear that. We'll be right back. Today's episode is sponsored by Madison Reed. Since 2013, hundreds of thousands of women have tried and loved Madison Reed for the way they have revolutionized at-home hair color. Amy Everett founded the company, naming it after her daughter, because the status quo of hair color options either left much to be desired or cost way too much. Madison Reed offers the quality of a salon, the convenience and affordability of at-home hair color, and an ammonia-free formula with ingredients you can feel good about. With beautiful, multi-dimensional 
original hair color, you'll look like you just came from the salon, but you'll have saved a whole lot of time and money because Madison Reed color kits are delivered to your door on your schedule for under 25 bucks. To get started, find your perfect shade at madisonreed.com, and they have a special offer for you as a Best of Luck listener. Right now, you can get 10% off plus free shipping on your first color kit when you use the promo code LEFT. That's madisonreed.com, and use the promo code LEFT. I come to you today to speak of liars, lawsuits, and laughter. The first time I heard about Holocaust denial, I laughed. Holocaust denial? The Holocaust which has the dubious distinction of being the best documented genocide in the world. Who could believe it didn't happen? Think about it. For deniers to be right, who would have to be wrong? Well, first of all, the victims, the survivors, who have told us their harrowing stories. Who else would have to be wrong? The bystanders, the people who lived in the myriads of towns and villages and cities on the Eastern Front, who watched their neighbors be rounded up, men, women, children, young, old, and be marched to the outskirts of the town to be shot and left dead in ditches. Or the Poles, who lived in towns or villages around the death camps, who watched day after day as the trains went in, filled with people, and came out empty. But above all, who would have to be wrong? The perpetrators. The people who say, we did it. I did it. Now, maybe they add a caveat. They say, I didn't have a choice. I was forced to do it. But nonetheless, they said, I did it. Think about it. In not one war crimes trial since the end of World War II has a perpetrator of any nationality ever said it didn't happen. Again, they may have said, I was forced, but never that it didn't happen. Having thought that through, I decided... Denial was not going to be on my agenda. I had bigger things to worry about, to write about, to research, and I moved on. Fast forward a little over a decade, and two senior scholars, scholars of the Holocaust, two most prominent historians of the Holocaust, approached me and said, Deborah, let's have coffee. We have a research idea that we think is perfect for you. Intrigued and flattered that they came to me with an idea and thought me worthy of it, I asked, what is it? And they said, Holocaust denial. And for the second time, I laughed. Holocaust denial? The flat earth folks? The Elvis is alive people? I should study them? And these two guys said, yeah, we're, we're intrigued. What are they about? What's their objective? How do they manage to get people to believe what they say? So thinking... If they thought it was worthwhile, I would take a momentary diversion, maybe a year, maybe two, three, maybe even four. In academic terms, that's momentary. Um, <laughs> we work very slowly. Um, and I would look at them. 
So I did. I did my research, and I came up with a number of things, two of which I'd like to share with you today. One, deniers are wolves in sheep's clothing. They are the same Nazis, neo-Nazis. You can decide whether you want to put a neo there or not. But when I looked at them, I didn't see any SS-like uniforms, swastika-like symbols on the wall, Sig Heil salutes, none of that. What I found instead were people parading as respectable academics. What did they have? They had an institute, an institute for historical review. They had a journal, a slick journal, a journal of historical review, one filled with papers, footnote-laden papers. And they had a new name, not neo-Nazis, not anti-Semites, revisionists. They said, we are revisionists. We are out to do one thing, to revise mistakes in history. But all you had to do was go one inch below the surface. And what did you find there? The same adulation of Hitler, praise of the Third Reich, anti-Semitism, racism, prejudice. This is what intrigued me. It was anti-Semitism, racism, prejudice, parading as rational discourse. The other thing I found, many of us have been taught to think there are facts and there are opinions. After studying deniers, I think differently. There are facts, there are opinions, and there are lies. And what deniers want to do is take their lies dress them up as opinions, maybe edgy opinions, maybe sort of -of out-of-the-box opinions, but then if they're opinions, they should be part of the conversation. And then they encroach on the facts. I published my work. The book was published, Denying the Holocaust, The Growing Assault on Truth and Memory. came out in many different countries, including here in Penguin, UK. And I was done with those folks and ready to move on. Then came the letter from Penguin UK. And for the third time, I laughed. Mistakenly. I opened the letter, and it informed me that David Irving was bringing a libel suit against me in the United Kingdom for calling him a Holocaust denier. David Irving suing me? Who was David Irving? David Irving was a writer of historical works most of them about World War II, and virtually all of those works took the position that the Nazis were really not so bad, and the Allies were really not so good, and the Jews, whatever happened to them, they sort of deserved it. He knew the documents, he knew the facts, but he somehow twisted them to get this opinion. He hadn't always been a Holocaust denier, but in the late 80s, he embraced it with great vigor. The reason I laughed also was this was a man who not only was a Holocaust denier, but seemed quite proud of it. Here was a man, and I quote, who said, I'm going to sink the battleship Auschwitz. Here was a man who pointed to the number tattooed on a survivor's arm and said, 
How much money have you made from having that number tattooed on your arm? Here was a man who said more people died in Senator Kennedy's car at Chappaquiddick than died in gas chambers at Auschwitz. It's an American reference, but you can look it up. This was not a man who seemed at all ashamed or reticent about being a Holocaust denier. Now, lots of my academic colleagues counseled me, ah, Deborah, just ignore it. When I explained you can't just ignore a libel suit, they said, ah, who's going to believe him anyway? But here was the problem. British law put the onus, put the burden of proof on me to prove the truth of what I said, in contrast to, as it would have been in the United States and in many other countries, on him to prove the falsehood. What did that mean? That meant if I didn't fight, he would win by default. And if he won by default, he could then legitimately say, my David Irving version of the Holocaust is a legitimate version. Deborah Lipstadt was found to have libeled me when she called me a Holocaust denier. Ipso facto, I, David Irving, am not a Holocaust denier. And what is that version? There was no plan to murder the Jews. There were no gas chambers. There were no mass shootings. Hitler had nothing to do with any suffering that went on. And the Jews have made this all up to get money from Germany and to get a state. And they've done it with the aid and abettance of the allies. They've planted the documents and planted the evidence. I couldn't let that stand and ever face a survivor or a child of survivors. I couldn't let that stand and consider myself a responsible historian. So we fought, and for those of you who haven't seen Denial, spoiler alert, we won. <laughs> the judge found David Irving to be a liar, a racist, an anti-Semite. His view of history was tendacious. He lied, he distorted, and most importantly, he did it deliberately. We showed a pattern in over 25 different major instances, not small things. Many of us in this audience write books or writing books. We always make mistakes. That's why we're glad to have second editions. Correct the mistakes. Um, but these always moved in the same direction. Blame the Jews, exonerate the Nazis. But how did we win? What we did is follow his footnotes back to his sources. And what did we find? Not in most cases and not in the preponderance of cases, but in every single instance where he made some reference to the Holocaust, that his supposed evidence was distorted, half-truth, date changed, sequence changed, someone put in a meeting who wasn't there. In other words, he didn't have the evidence. His evidence didn't prove it. We didn't prove what happened. We proved that what he said happened, and by extension, all deniers, because he either quotes them or they get their arguments from him, is not true. They, what they claim, they don't have the evidence to prove it. So why is my story 
more than just the story of a quirky, long, six-year, difficult lawsuit, an American professor being, decla- being dragged into a courtroom by a man that the court declared in its judgment was a neo-Nazi polemicist. What message does it have? I think in the context of the question of truth, it has a very significant message. Because today, as we well know, truth and facts are under assault. Social media, for all the gifts it has given us, has also allowed the difference between facts, established facts, and lies to be flattened. Third of all, extremism. It's per- you may not see Ku Klux Klan robes. You may not see burning crosses. You may not even hear outright white supremacist language. It may go by names alt-right, national fronts. Pick your names. But underneath, it's that same extremism that I found in Holocaust denial parading as rational discourse. We live in an age where truth is on the defensive. Uh, I'm reminded of a New Yorker cartoon, a quiz show recently appeared in the New Yorker, where the host of the quiz show is saying to one of the contestants, yes, ma'am, you had the right answer, but your opponent yelled more loudly than you did, so he gets the point. What can we do? First of all, we cannot be beguiled by rational appearances. We've got to look underneath and we will find there the extremism. Second of all, we must understand that truth is not relative. Number three, we must go on the offensive, not the defensive. When someone makes an outrageous claim, even though they may hold one of the highest offices in the land, if not the world, we must say to them, where's the proof? Where's the evidence? We must hold their feet to the fire. We must not treat it as if their lies are the same as the facts. And as I said earlier, truth is not relative. Many of us have grown up in the world of the academy and enlightened liberal thought where we're taught everything is open to debate. But that's not the case. There are certain things that are true. There are indisputable facts, objective truths. Galileo taught it to us centuries ago, even after being forced to recant by the Vatican that the earth moved around the sun. He came out, and what is he reported to have said? And yet, it still moves. The earth is not flat. The climate is changing. Elvis is not alive. (laughs) And most importantly, truth and fact are under assault. The job ahead of us, the task ahead of us, the challenge ahead of us is great. The time to fight is short. We must act now. Later will be too late.
We've just heard clips today starting with backstory discussing anti-Semitism in the U.S. going back to World War II. Past Present talked about the history of anti-Semitism in light of the recent Pittsburgh synagogue shooting. The Brian Lehrer Show held a roundtable discussion about Trump, nationalism, and anti-Semitic code words. Samantha B. on Full Frontal examined the mainstreaming of anti-Semitism in the Republican Party. And finally, we just heard a TED Talk from Deborah Lipstadt on the relationship between the lies of Holocaust denial and the everyday lies that are destabilizing any sense of a shared notion of truth. Members will be getting a bonus episode with a couple of additional clips, including further exploration of anti-Semitism with a historical perspective and an examination of one of Alex Jones's stunningly anti-Semitic rants, along with a reminder that our president is a big fan of his. To hear all of that, to cast a weekly vote on what upcoming topics you want to hear on the show, and for further details about supporting the show by being a patron, visit patreon.com bestofleft. You can find that link in the show notes on the device you're using to listen, which is also where you can find links to each of today's segments for easy reference and sharing. And now, we'll hear from you. Hi, this is Heather from Texas. Um, I just got through listening to your episode about uh, why men would be better off without the patriarchy. And I, I just wanted to give a shout out to a, a uh, South Korean TV show that my fiance and I love to watch called uh, The Return of Superman. And it's a reality TV show that essentially focuses on these celebrity dads and their relationships with their children. And that's not to say that the show, that's not to say that the show doesn't have its own issues or that South Korean society is, is perfect when it comes to sexism. But it is so refreshing to see a show that really puts a positive light on, on just the parental value of, of, of dads being a part of their children's lives. And, um, I highly recommend it to anyone who, who's interested in it. My fiance and I love to watch this show, and thanks for, for everything that you do. I love the podcast. Bye. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, you can simply record a message at 202-999-3991. And now I have uh, one last bonus clip for you, actually, on today's topic, uh, which I just saved until uh, the end here because I want to talk about it afterwards. So let's hear that from The David Pakman Show. Last week during the notable Reddit discussion story, there was a post I mentioned on our subreddit called, Is the Left Taking Anti-Semitism Seriously Enough? And there's actually a bigger specific story here, which is that of Louis Farrakhan's involvement in the Women's March. The Women's March has been a remarkable example of activism in the Trump era. Uh, even if I've had specific criticisms of some particular marches in the past, the political engagement that Trump has catalyzed is great. Of course, assuming it leads to voter turnout increases in 2018 and it moves the needle in terms of getting these right wing nuts out of elected office. But the Women's March big picture is a really great thing, despite my sort of micro criticisms of it. But the Women's March has some major problems. And one of those problems is something that I've identified among a strain of the left for a long time. And to put it in the most charitable terms, 
It's the indifference to extremely anti-Semitic elements in their ranks. Many of the Women's March leaders are directly connected to one of the most notorious anti-Semites in American culture from the last several decades, and that is the leader of the Nation of Islam, Louis Farrakhan. And this guy is undoubtedly a massive anti-Semite, a disgusting and vile Jew hater. Both the Anti-Defamation League and the Simon Wiesenthal Center are unequivocal on this. And it's not a new thing, right? You go back to 1985 and Farrakhan said of the Jews, and don't you forget when it's God who puts you in the ovens, it's forever. Skip ahead 30 years to March of 2015. Farrakhan accused Jews of being involved in the September 11th attacks. Farrakhan has called Adolf Hitler a very great man. In his speech last month, he described the powerful Jews as his enemy, and he actually sort of looked back nostalgically at the anti-Jewish statements of President Richard Nixon and the Reverend Billy Graham, who recently passed away. It's a very, very long list, and the Nation of Islam is an organization which he leads, and it's all just filled with rampant anti-Semitism. There's no denying that. And three of the women involved at the top level of the Women's March are directly tied to Farrakhan, Linda Sarsour, Carmen Perez, and Tamika Mallory. And I have said for years that anti-Semitism is a blind spot for some left-wing activists. And this came to a head last week when Farrakhan, as I mentioned, spoke at the Nation of Islam's Savior's Day, and he again talked about satanic Jews, saying when you want something in this world, the Jews hold the door, white folks are going down, and Satan is going down, and Farrakhan, by God's grace, has pulled the cover off of that satanic Jew, and I'm here to say your time is up. This is the anti-Semitism and the straight up racist nonsense that this guy has been perpetrating for decades. Anyone with actual progressive values or any Western liberal values whatsoever should condemn it. And it should have uh, the Women's March should have nothing to do whatsoever with Louis Farrakhan or with his organization, the Nation of Islam. But this is barely registering with some of these so-called leftists. Some examples Tamika Mallory recently asked about Farrakhan's statements. And here's what she came up with on Twitter. The black community is very complex. We have been and continue to suffer through incomparable circumstances. This means other people may not understand how we organize and all that it takes to deal with our pain. I am dedicated to bringing people together. However, I will not be bullied, presumably into denouncing Louis Farrakhan. So we have to understand that part of the black community dealing with its trauma is to accept an insatiable and violent Jew hater like Louis Farrakhan. Jew hatred from Louis Farrakhan is necessary to work through the injustices that have been perpetrated on the African-American community. That's not my flavor of the left. It never will be. And I'm sorry if that angers you. I mentioned Carmen Perez. She was asked about Louis Farrakhan and his connection to the Women's March. And she said, in regards to Minister Farrakhan, I think that is a distraction. People need to understand the significant contributions that these individuals have made to black and brown people. There are no perfect leaders. We follow the legacy of Dr. King, which is Kingian nonviolence. We say we have to attack the forces of evil, not the people doing evil. We never attack people. Well, then it sounds like Louis Farrakhan's ideas are merely not compatible with the ideas that you're claiming to follow. 
And you should make that clear and show that that level of hatred has no place at the Women's March. To say that Farrakhan is a distraction uh, is just not adequate. How can we on the left correctly criticize the alt-right for their ties to and their indifference to ties to white nationalists without denouncing and ostracizing and alienating someone like Louis Farrakhan? who make statements that are very similar to the anti-Semitic conspiracy theories we hear from the alt-right. When on the right they admire Hitler, we say, oh, that's a discrediting point of view. Yet we have someone on the supposed left in Louis Farrakhan who said Hitler was great, and you have the leaders of the Women's March refusing to denounce him and his connection to the march. That's not a part of the left that I'm ever going to be a part of. Okay, so I'm playing this clip and responding to it not because I disagree with it or, or need to correct anything about it. I, I don't really think I, I disagree with anything that's being said, but I, I thought that rather than playing it in the middle of the show, I wanted to play it here at the end so that we could discuss it is because I, I heard the clip and it left me with questions. And uh, so the primary question is, what are these complications that he mentions that, that at least one or more of these women have, have mentioned? What are these complications of the black community that make it difficult to denounce Louis Farrakhan, which seems like it should be easy? And uh, I searched around, and frankly, most of the articles are fairly simple, uh, more or less like David's commentary, laying out the case for denouncing Farrakhan while quickly dismissing any excuse involving the idea that, hey, things are complicated, back off, you don't get it. Especially now, because when Holocaust survivors are being gunned down in their own synagogues, it should be pretty easy to cut through any lingering complications and get on to denouncing. So in my search, I did find this one article that I think does a good job of recognizing the difference between explaining and excusing, which is one of my favorite ways to to parse <laughs> um, political conversations. Uh, I, I love to be able to explain something and and come to a better, more nuanced, more thoughtful, uh, just frankly higher level of understanding, even if it doesn't change one's ultimate conclusion. You, you can still think, okay, now I understand why you're doing what you're doing. You still need to change. That's a completely legitimate position to hold, especially in this case. But I think that uh, I, I can read from this article a bit and and we can get a better sense of what's going on. So this is titled Linda Sarsour, Tamika Mallory, and the Long Shadow of Louis Farrakhan. This is written by Esther Wang uh, and it was printed in Jezebel. So this first paragraph, it's, I'm going to read quite a bit from the article, but not nearly all of it. It's, it's quite a long article. I recommend anyone go check out the whole thing. But, uh, this first paragraph is not the beginning of the article, but it sort of sets the scene nicely for how this writer is trying to explain the situation while not like making any excuses for Farrakhan. So the article says, Farrakhan is someone that few would call a leader of today's left. He is rather, as Manning Marble wrote, a staunch conservative wrapped up in black nationalist politics, and in that respect is sort of a warped mirror image of Donald Trump, whom Farrakhan professes to support. 
As many have noted, Farrakhan has long joined forces with anti-black reactionaries like Lyndon LaRouche and gained admirers from white nationalist groups for, among other things, his embrace of racial separatism. Yet, as Mallory explained, her loyalty is a result of a time of personal tragedy and loss. After the father of her child was killed, it was, she wrote, quote, the women of the Nation of Islam who supported me, unquote. As The Atlantic's Adam Sura wrote in March, that derives from, quote, a sense that despite the nation's many flaws, it is present for black people in America's most deprived and segregated enclaves when the state itself is not present, to say nothing of those who demand its condemnation, unquote. For Mallory, who has also written of her refusal to discard Bill Cosby, even in the wake of his rape trial, support for Farrakhan is closely tied to the project of black liberation, a cause that the Nation of Islam still continues to represent, if with declining relevancy. Quote, where my people are is where I must also be. I go into difficult spaces, she wrote. While it is easy to side-eye the sort of steadfast support of wholly undeserving men, my eyebrows practically shot up off my face when I read her defense of Cosby, it is less easy to discount her reasons for doing so. Okay, then this is where we get into the core of explaining, not excusing. I cannot make that point clearly enough or enough times, I think. Okay, continuing... It is a point that Mallory herself made to Surwer, quote, Men, particularly in my family, people who had been arrested and people who had been through really troubled situations, I saw them cleaning themselves up and were successful, unquote, because of the Nation of Islam, which, she said, quote, had been influential in helping them turn their lives around, unquote. As Brianna Joy Gray underscored in a piece in Rolling Stone, while noting that, quote, there is no ethical defense of Farrakhan's anti-Semitic remarks, the argument that Mallory's interest in Farrakhan is not rooted in anti-Semitism, that she could support Farrakhan's advocacy for black equality despite his bigoted blind spots, is a more plausible and, frankly, more common posture than most of the media is willing to recognize. Pausing, now, this is exactly what David Pakman is talking about clearly not just Farrakhan's bigoted blind spots, but the blind spot for anti-Semitism on the left more broadly, uh, the, the idea that it's not as urgent of an issue as some others, which allows some to push it to the back seat or back burner, and, and uh, it so gives people like Mallory this sort of uh, mental political latitude to be able to support someone like Farrakhan, without there being major backlash for a pretty long time. And uh, the dynamics of that seem to be changing. You know, we, we can certainly hope that they are, uh, as we're in this era of heightened anti-Semitism, and it's waking more people up to its dangers and the fact that it's not just a relic of the past. Okay, so continuing, we can recognize the nuance of Mallory's position on Farrakhan while also recognizing that holding it is an increasingly untenable if it ever was, posture at a time when attacks on Jewish Americans and members of all marginalized groups are on the rise, with the fuel largely coming from an emboldened white nationalist movement whose figurehead now sits in the White House. 
a bright line can be traced from Trump's rhetoric to the Tree of Life massacre, to Cesar Sayoc, to the smearing of liberal philanthropist George Soros, to the desecration of Jewish cemeteries. Pausing again. Okay, now this is where the nuance gets even messier. This final paragraph I'm going to read adds yet another layer by getting into the power dynamics of some of the players involved. Continuing, can similar blame be put on Farrakhan? As Max Berger, writer and co-founder of If Not Now, a leftist Jewish-American organization that advocates against what it describes as the Israeli occupation, expressed on Twitter, quote, Trump is the president, and his followers are out here murdering people. Farrakhan is a pathetic old man whose followers are poor black people, unquote. How valid is it to create an equivalence between the two, one that flattens important distinctions in both social position and in real authority? The statement, if not now released in March, echoed Berger, quote, that the Anti-Defamation League and other Jewish leaders undermining the Women's March fail to understand that the true threat to our community today is the rise of white nationalism is a galling moral failure, unquote. It continues, quote, the leaders of the Women's March have erred, but we can name that error without writing them off, unquote. And the article continues from there. As I said, it's a long one. There's lots in it that I didn't read. Uh, again, it's Linda Sarsour, Tamika Mallory, and the Long Shadow of Louis Farrakhan in Jezebel. And here, here are my sort of final thoughts that, that, um, I hope will help explain just by, and by making a comparison. The Nation of Islam, which frankly I don't know that much about aside from these types of descriptions I've heard in, in articles like this one, which I've heard more than once, uh, it, it frankly reminds me a bit of uh, Hezbollah <laughs> in that it's an organization that receives much of its support, not necessarily based on its core ideology, but based on the fact that they step in to provide services when the larger society fails. So as was described in this article, the Nation of Islam often provides a community for black people for whom the larger community has failed. And in a different yet very similar way, Hezbollah is known for providing services in Lebanon where the government is absent. So they do things like opening schools and universities, medical centers, so on, like things that should be core governmental operations that are absent. This organization, which otherwise has a horrible ideology that many people should not want to follow, but they, they do these sort of core community functions. And, and so this is done specifically as a strategy to garner support from a broader swath of people than these organizations would probably otherwise be able to get. And, and I don't even mean to say that it's a completely cynical act. Like all of the people who make up these organizations are human after all. Like I'm sure they have sincere, positive feelings about helping people, but the two go hand in hand and can't be separated. People get genuine help from the organizations and the organizations receive genuine support, which bolsters their ideological goals, which may be very different from the ideologies of those who were helped. So in essence, these organizations are taking advantage of people's desperation because by definition, it's hard to turn down any kind of help when you're desperate. And it's very hard to not feel that human urge to repay the help. So when support is given to the Nation of Islam, or Louis Farrakhan in particular, 
by someone who is essentially indebted to them because they received support from that organization in a desperate time in their lives, you can still make the argument, and I agree with the argument, that it is an untenable position to continue to support that organization. But if you can't see why it's complicated for some people, or you can't have uh, some sort of sympathy or empathy for why they would struggle to distance themselves from an organization that helped them in the past, then I think you really are missing an important part of the story. And with that, I hope we have a better understanding of how otherwise progressive people can can be pulled in sort of two directions when it comes to an organization like the Nation of Islam and the seemingly simple proposition of denouncing anti-Semitism and those who spout it. You know, it's frustrating and we can wish the world was simpler, but almost nothing about humans is simple. As always, I would love to hear your thoughts. You can keep the comments coming in at 202-999-3991. That is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making donations of any size at patreon.com slash bestoftheleft, as that is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving us glowing reviews on Apple Podcasts and Facebook to help others find the show. For details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog and likely right on the device you're using to listen. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Mm-hmm.